on today's episode of Mile Higher. The bus carrying the youngsters and driver from a summer school session at Dairyland Unified School was found empty. This is actually the largest kidnapping in U.S. history coming out of Chowchilla, California. I think it's some type of a group that wants recognition and, and money. All the kids are obviously terrified about what's going on and confused probably by what's going on. It's hard to wrap your head around how did all these kids and the bus driver all vanish all at once. A lot of them are scared to let their kids out of the house. It's been like a nightmare. Just imagine the fear as a child or as an adult, anyone being in that situation. I mean, this van looks straight out of a horror movie. It's so, so creepy. They executed on this plan before destroying all the evidence that would then link them to the crime is just a major misstep on their part. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 285. I am your host, Kendall. And I'm your host, Josh. And we are joined by our producer, Janelle. What's up? So today we have a case that I'm surprised hasn't been covered more, honestly. This is actually the largest kidnapping in U.S. history. It's an absolutely wild story coming out of Chowchilla, California. And it took place back in 1976, but it's just an absolutely wild story, which does have somewhat of a positive ending. I mean, things could have been a whole lot worse. Yeah, definitely. I would say it's a major, I mean, it's an inspiring story for sure. There's a lot of, of horrible things that happen as a part of this incident, but definitely not quite as dark as some of our previous episodes. But there's definitely a lot to discuss with this. Yeah, I mean, 26 children and their school bus driver were all kidnapped for ransom. And this sounds crazy, but they were buried alive, which we will explain how it still ends up having a somewhat happy ending. Yeah, there's a great, great film uh, that Mm -hmm. came out at the end of last year, I believe, that's out on HBO Max and called Chowchilla. And it's basically a film going over this this whole story and it's a documentary yeah from uh, cnn films i think but it is it, it almost brought me to tears last night yeah. watching it because i was just like wow this is just such a crazy story yeah. and what's really interesting about it and you know janelle's got the uh, counseling background so i'm really interested to hear her thoughts on this whole thing is that what these children went through is beyond comprehension and we're talking children as young as four five six mm-hmm. years old uh who who went through this this kidnapping and it really paved the way for understanding childhood trauma because back in 1976 it was just such a different time that yep. nobody really understood trauma i guess like childhood trauma especially is that mm-hmm. correct janelle yeah, well, I think like back then, especially PTSD was like you only have PTSD if you're from the war or something, right. you know, quote unquote, absolutely horrific happened to you. But typically it's not kids don't get it, you know, and especially if you're physically OK, then all right, then you're fine. We can you know move on and get over it. But I mean, as we found out, your childhood is extremely um, transformative. How 
you know, your upbringing is and how your whole life is. So, yeah, I mean, everything that happens in your childhood affects who you are as an adult. Mm -hmm. I mean, that can be said in so many different ways, whether it's trauma or not. Your childhood just really shapes who you are. So when you experience these traumatic events, especially what these kids went through, the after effects on them for the rest of their lives were pretty outstanding. And yes, back then, there wasn't really a good understanding for what trauma really means. You know, people understood the word traumatic and that something horrible can happen to you. But what does that really do to a human? And how does that alter your brain chemistry? So a lot was learned from this case. Yeah, I think what you'll find, especially once we get to the end, is that you will probably feel very angry by how how this was handled and how little support these children received in the aftermath uh, of this horrible event. And not to mention those involved in the kidnapping, the fact that they're all out of prison now. And it's it's just Pretty truly mind blowing to see and just to see the the ripple effect that this this event had on on the whole community of Chowchilla as well as the children. I mean, it is just a I mean, when have you ever heard of a story of twenty six children being kidnapped all at once? I mean, it's just unheard well, of. It has happened. Yeah, no, definitely it's happened in uh, it's definitely rare. other parts of the world for sure. It happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was really like the first time in the United States that something like this ever occurred. So yeah, buckle up. It's just a a gripping emotional ride. There is also a movie that some of you may have seen. We didn't have the time to check it out, but it came out in 1993, the year I was born. It's called They've Taken Our Children, the Chowchilla Kidnapping. I think it's uh, Vanished Without a Trace is the actual film. Oh, I'm seeing. That might be a different one that you're looking at, but there's a film called Vanished Without a Trace. I I think you're looking at the... Oh, I see. They've Taken Our Children, Vanished Without a Trace. It seems to be referred to as both. Yeah, well, you can search both. I believe the titles "Vanish Without a Trace." Like, yeah, if you search that on right. Prime Video, you can watch that. That's as that. That's like a like movie, mm-hmm. you know, based on true events type of situation. Yeah. I don't know how good it is. It has a well, it has a six point two on IMDb. That's not too bad, mm-hmm. but yeah, might be worth watching after listening to this episode. But um, anyway, before we jump in, I wanted to take a moment. I thought it was particularly fitting for this episode to remind you guys about our National Center for Missing and Exploited Children campaign. We have just restocked our sweatshirts. These have been selling out like crazy, which thank you to everyone who has purchased one so far. It means a lot to us. I love this sweatshirt. It is such good quality. I love the colors. Um, We actually have a print. Where is it? On the lower back. Yes, on the lower back. You can't see it on camera here, but um, it's the first time that we've done a hoodie for Neckmeck. And I love how these turned out. I think this might be our last restock before we change up our design and future collections. So if you would like to get your hands on one of these, you can get it at kendallray.shop. And as always, 100% of the profit from that whole collection goes directly to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And we also have a long sleeve shirt coming out soon. Might be out in time, but if not, it'll be out very soon. Yeah, I'm not. Look we're still that. like ironing out the details for that. But yeah, yeah, there is a new item coming. Merch takes painfully long sometimes. But anyway. All right. Let's go ahead and dive in. in. We got a, okay. a lot of ground to cover yeah, here. We do. So let's let's uh, 
take you back to 1976 in Chowchilla, California. So Chowchilla, interesting name. It's located in California's Central Valley, and it's about 150 miles southeast of San Francisco. This small town is very small, actually only about 11 square miles. And locals say that in 1976, you could drive a car all the way through the town from one end to the other in less than 30 seconds. The town was incorporated in 1923 with many of the original settlers raising generations of children there. And by 1976, many of the families had known each other for decades. So very, you know, small town vibes here. People from the area described Chowchilla as a close-knit cow town where things were low-paced. Even now, the town is pretty small with a reported population of less than 20,000. So definitely on the smaller side. Chowchilla has always been known as a safe town. Nobody locked their doors. Kids played out in the streets. And nobody in the town had ever been fearful that something bad might happen there. Which, to be fair, in the 1970s, this was pretty widespread. Like, I know our parents would be like, there was no Mm -hmm. fears, you know, of like, lock, you know, having somebody Mm -hmm. come into your house unannounced or anything like that. So it's just really the time period. Yeah. And I mean, if you consume true crime, you hear that's, you know. Well, every town thinks, thinks they're safe, right? Yeah. Yeah. Until something horrible happens. And for Chowchilla, that was until July 15th, 1976. And that day, the students of Dairyland Elementary School spent the day swimming and playing at the Chowchilla Fairgrounds. This was the last day of summer school and the start to summer break. And as the children wrapped up their activities at the fairgrounds swimming pool, they filed into a bright yellow school bus driven by a man named Frank Edward or Ed Ray. And Ed Ray was very well known to the students on his bus. The kids in the area were super, super fond of him and knew him to be the kind of man that they could trust to keep them safe. Ed was married to a bank teller named Odessa, and those who knew Ed described him as a genuinely kind and decent person. And the two of them had two sons together. Ed was born in 1921 in La Grande, California, where he lived on his family's farmland. Later in life, Ed settled down in Chowchilla, only 12 miles away from his birthplace, and there he took up the job as the school bus driver. And this was a job that his own children said meant the world to him. So after the kids were loaded up into the bus that day, Ed started driving the kids back home. It was around 4 p.m. during the drive when Ed spotted a white van. And this van suddenly tried to cut off the bus before coming to a halt in the middle of the road. And Ed believed that the driver of the van was having some sort of, you know, issue with his vehicle. And Ed, being the kind person that he was, just wanted to help. So he pulled over by the van. And suddenly, a man exited the van and was wearing a nylon stocking pulled tightly over their head. Obviously, a very bad sign there. And Ed immediately thought this was strange. But before he knew it, the man had approached the bus. And that's when Ed realized that he was carrying a gun. And as the man approached the bus, he demanded that Ed open the door. And fearing for his life, he did. Yeah, what are you supposed to do in that situation? Because, like, my first thought was, like, why not reverse the bus and, like, try to get out of there? But that would have been difficult on that road, probably. Yeah. And also, if they have a gun, you're going to assume that they're going to start shooting at the bus. And yeah. I'm sure Ed's, like, and I mean, processing he's just so caught off guard being in the... You yeah, know, well... This small town, nothing like this has ever happened there. I mean, it's 1976. A guy with a gun comes up. It's just so, you barely shocking. have time to yeah, think. It's completely shocking. 
So obviously the kids are totally freaked out by the fact that this strange man with his face covered up ran up to the bus and demanded to be let on. One six-year-old child named Larry Park told the masked man that if you don't get me back in time, my dad will be on you like stink on skunk. Love that term. But anyway, right after this, a second man came onto the bus and this man, who was also dressed in a nylon stocking, was carrying a sawed-off shotgun. And the man pointed the gun directly at Ed and the children as the first man took the driver's seat. The man in the driver's seat began driving the bus away while the third man followed behind them in a white van. So imagine this scene for a moment and all the kids are obviously terrified about what's going on and confused probably by what's going on. I mean, when you're in elementary school, just processing what's actually happening on. I know a lot of kids said they thought it was a joke at first, but then obviously when Ed's like, hey guys, all right, this, you know, something serious is going on and he's talking to the kids, trying to get them to, to quiet down and listen to him because he does Ed knows how serious the situation is, right? So there's a lot of possibilities here. What's, what's going to happen to the kids? Are they going to hurt them worse? Are they going to kill them? And this was when Ed's demeanor really changed. He really started talking to the kids in a very stern way, which was out of character for him. And so I think that alone really got the kids' attention to, and to realize that serious. this is a yeah. very serious situation. And I can't even imagine how terrified Ed must have been. Oh, my God like wondering what's about to happen. And so Ed's number one mission in this whole thing was to keep the kids safe as, as best that he could. The abductors didn't drive the bus for very long before arriving at the Berenda Slough, a shallow area of the Chowchilla River. These days, the Berenda Slough is a popular place for those looking to float in the river during the summer. However, in that hot, dry July of 1976, the slough was completely dried up and filled with tall grass. There's also uh, quite a bit of trees in that area as well so the men drove the bus and van down into the grass where there was a green van waiting for them the kidnappers backed one of the vans up flush to the door of the bus they opened the back doors of the van and forced the children one by one to jump the gap between the bus steps and into the back of the van in order to prevent any footprints from being left behind as one student 10 year old jody heffington reached the door one of the kidnappers pressed a sawed off shotgun into her stomach Jody begged the man not to shoot her, telling him she'd done everything he'd asked. But the man didn't say a word. Instead, he held her in that terrifying position as they closed the doors of the first van and backed up a second van to the bus. Then Jody, Ed, and the rest of the students were loaded into that second van. Inside of the vans, they had been converted into terrifying mobile prisons. The walls were lined with wood paneling, blocking the walls and providing an extra layer of separation between the victims and the men in the cab. The window on the van's doors were completely blacked out. So once those doors shut, the children were left in total darkness. Just imagine the fear as a child or as an adult, anyone being in that situation. I mean, this van looks straight out of a horror movie. It's so, so creepy. They also said that they had the air conditioning on for a little bit, but eventually it turned off. And so you can only imagine, even with air conditioning going back through, you can only imagine how hot yeah. It would have gotten in in the back of those vans. With that many people. And they were in there for a long time. Hours. Hours it felt like as they were being driven around in this cramped pitch black van. The younger children who were only five or six years old clanged to their older schoolmates for comfort. 
Nine-year-old Jennifer Brown would later recall holding her younger friends as they cried and telling them, quote, be brave because everything's going to be all right. As the children were being driven miles from home, parents back in Chowchilla arrived home to empty houses. Jennifer Brown's mother remembers walking into a quiet house, and typically when she'd come home, she saw remnants of snacks on the counter from Jennifer. And this time, she realized that there was no remains of snacks on the counter, and it didn't take her very long before she realized that something was very wrong. Hours passed as none of the children showed up, and the parents began to panic. It was clear that something had happened to the children. Police were contacted immediately, and they began searching for the bus as well as the children. And they started by searching the bus's typical route, hoping to find a clue to its location. Just before the sun had set, a police airplane spotted the missing bus in the dry Chichilla riverbed. Sheriff Ed Bates, yes, another Ed in this particular story, was quick to arrive on the scene. There they found distinct tire prints that showed a vehicle had pulled up to the doors of the bus, but there was no sign of any children or their bus driver. Sheriff Bates instantly recognized that he needed help and contacted the governor, which led to a very swift state police and FBI response. Because again, this is a tiny town. I think they said they had one officer on patrol for the entire town uh, at this particular time. And the governor even made the National Guard available to assist as well. Even President Gerald Ford was made aware of the situation, and he gave all law enforcement agencies a blank check to look for the kids. And Governor Jerry Brown did the same. Government officials were basically willing to do whatever it took to get the proper resources in order to find these kids. Ed's nephew, Ronnie Ray, said that the media came pouring in almost immediately. He said, quote, they had table after table of phone lines and computers were really getting a stronghold. They had reporters from all over the world. And during this time, we didn't know where Ed was. And at one point, the media questioned, you know, whether Ed could have possibly had something to do with the kid's disappearance. Obviously, it is kind of a natural first thought to have. But those who knew Ed said that that was just ridiculous to think that and that Ed was a good, honest man who loved his job. And one of his biggest priorities was to keep these children safe. He took it very seriously. So meanwhile, Sheriff Bates was handling the phone tips down at the station and they were getting tons of calls from people reporting false tips. I mean, for the most part, people were trying to help. They were calling to report anything that they thought might be a clue. If someone saw a random child's shoe on the side of the road, they would call in, etc. If they saw a person who they thought might be suspicious, they're going to call in. I mean, people were just so freaked out and desperate at that point, just N- wanted to help. Not only that, conspiracy theories came in as well. Yeah. Which was wild. Which is, I mean, for something like this is one that natural. One that was, I found kind of, interesting was somebody called in thinking that maybe son of sam yeah. had something to do with this yep. kept going on and on about something. or some type of cult or aliens even yeah yep. aliens UFOs. i mean i know there was townsfolk that were even considering that because it's just like they've banished from all it's hard to wrap your head around how did all these kids and the bus driver all vanish all at once in, in you know in the most unlikely situation i mean your mind would definitely wander. And so that night, the parents all gathered at the local fire station as 30 FBI agents arrived to offer their aid in the investigation. Coffee and snacks were handed out to the parents, although I don't know how you would possibly eat or drink at that moment. And Sheriff Bates decided to address the parents and the loved ones of the victims. And he said, let me tell you something. No one is going to try and get away with hurting 26 children and a bus driver. Where are they going to hide them? Where are they going to put them? They have to take care of them somehow. If you had a herd of ducks, 
you'd have to keep them somewhere. Whoever did this doesn't want to hurt your children. They want money and you haven't got any money. They're going to ask the government to provide it. Nobody else has money like that. Reverend Buskirk held a sermon at the First Baptist Church, and he cited Psalms 23, 37, and 91 because they, quote, best respond to this kind of evil, which I'm not familiar with those, but that was what he said. Here's some footage of authorities discussing the missing children. I, I just arrived about five minutes ago, gentlemen, and I'm trying to find out just what the situation is. As far as I can tell, uh, we're going to deal in facts and not speculation. At the present time, we know that there are 27 people missing since about uh, uh, 4.15 yesterday afternoon. And it's our job and the job of the entire law enforcement community here in uh, Chowchilla uh, to find these youngsters and the bus driver and to make sure we take the responsible people into custody for uh, this particular crime. At which point do you take over fully? I don't think it's a question of anybody taking over fully. Uh, as far as the FBI is concerned, uh, according to the federal law, there is a presumption that there is a federal violation after 24 hours have passed, and that gives us authority to conduct an investigation. Up to this point, uh, Sheriff Ed Boots has been doing an outstanding job, and we are going to continue to work with the Madera County Sheriff's Office, uh, with the California Highway Patrol, and any other law enforcement uh, agencies that are necessary in our efforts to solve the crime. So it's not a question of anybody being in charge. It's a law enforcement community activity, and we're only going to be working together. We have had no contact whatsoever, to my knowledge. As I said, I just arrived a little bit ago, and I was told you gentlemen of the press and ladies of the press uh, wanted to uh, wanted me to come out and say something, and so therefore that's why I'm here. How many people do you have, sir? I don't even know that. We have uh, quite a number, and uh, we have additional people coming in from the surrounding offices. The exact numbers I do not have at this time. Do you have any political act? You think? That's speculation, sir. You find Your guess is as good as mine at this point. It means you have no leads, right? We have nothing to go on at the present time, and that's what we're There's trying no to do. Not to my knowledge, no. Skip, I understand a small purse was found and some clothes near Watsonville. Does that have any connection? I know nothing about uh, the find, finding of any purse. Do you know right. anything about it? No. Gentlemen, thank you very thank much. You if there is so obviously that clip is from 1976, so not the best audio quality there. But anyway, meanwhile, while all this is going on, in the back of the blacked out vans, the kids were obviously struggling to stay calm. They had began banging on the walls and shouting and the kidnappers are yelling back at them to shut up. And some of the kids were beginning to struggle to stay awake. Obviously, they're super young, but clearly being in the back of the van totally freaked out with all these other children. Their sleep is going to be on and off. But finally, after 12 grueling hours in the back of a blacked out van, they stopped. And by this point, it was 3.30 in the morning and they had arrived at their destination. And little did the group know that they were now 100 miles away in Livermore. The kidnappers then opened the door to one van and grabbed Ed from the group and then slammed the doors behind him. And now the kids were alone and obviously terrified about what was possibly happening to Ed. One of the kidnappers asked for his name and another told him to take off his boots and his pants. And then he was handed a flashlight and directed to go down a hole with a ladder in it. And then the doors opened again and the captors grabbed a child before slamming the doors shut. Methodically, these evil men repeated this pattern, pulling kids out one by one before shutting the rest back in the darkness. None of them knowing, you know, where their friends were, where Ed was where they're being taken or what's going to happen to them 
and each of the kids were forced to take their clothes off. As the children were removed from the vans one by one, 14-year-old Michael Marshall watched in terror. In his van in front of him was a small five-year-old girl named Monica Artery. As the men returned to the van, Michael couldn't bring himself to give them Monica, so he volunteered to go first, not knowing if he was marching to his own death. Michael climbed down the ladder into a small room at the bottom of this pit where he was met with all the other children and his bus driver, Ed. Moments later, Monica came down into the pit behind him. And despite being absolutely terrified, Michael actually felt a small bit of relief seeing his classmates and Ed still alive and all together in this hole. However, not all the children had gone into the hole so easily. Jody Heffington had an attitude with the abductors after one asked her for her name. She told them, quote, My name's Puddentang. If you ask me again, I'll tell you the same. And in case you don't know that term, this is an old rhyme kids use. The entire thing is, quote, what's my name? Putin Tang, ask me again and I'll tell you the same. What's my name? John Brown, ask me again and I'll knock you down. The man was upset by Jody's attitude and told her if she didn't give them her name, she was never going to see her parents again. Despite any turmoil, the men managed to get every child into the hole before removing the ladder. They threw a roll of toilet paper into the opening and told the kids, quote, we'll be back for you before shutting the entrance with a manhole cover. Down below, the children started to look around at their new prison, and it became clear that they were inside an old moving truck trailer. This trailer is only roughly 27 feet long. That is very small. I mean, if you think about the biggest U-Haul that you can rent is 40 feet long. Yeah. So we're talking 27 people in roughly a 27 foot, so not a lot of room. The floor was littered with mattresses, and there were wood beams reinforcing the roofs and walls. In the back was a small table surrounded by jugs of water, and on the mattresses were bags of food such as bread and some peanut butter and cereal. In the wheel wells of the truck, the kidnappers had cut out holes for the victims to use as a toilet. Though it was dark and hot, the children could hear fans seemingly circulating air into the trailer. They did have it vented to the outside so it wasn't completely airtight, but still, I mean, it's going to be very, very uncomfortable super rough conditions. As they took in their surroundings, they began to hear something terrifying. The sound of dirt being tossed onto the opening. And that's when they realized that they were being buried alive 12 feet underground. Just imagine what that would be like. I mean, not only for children, but at any age. Being stuck, you have no idea where you are, and then you can hear the dirt, the sound of that dirt piling in. And a lot of them talk about that in that documentary, we mentioned just how terrifying those moments were of realizing the, the gravity of what is happening now, that it's getting even worse than it already was. Obviously, they immediately tried to start looking for a way out, and Ed and the older kids took turns trying to pry loose the manhole cover. When it was clear that wouldn't work, Ed directed the children to lie down on the mattresses and try to get some rest. As the hour slowly passed, the children became more and more depressed and panicked. It would be eerily silent in the trailer for a stretch of time, then one of the kids would inevitably cry. They would set off a domino-like reaction where all the kids would slowly join in, filling the makeshift room with the desperate sounds of children who just want to go home to their parents. As the hours passed, the children's parents and the FBI continued to search for the children and wait for a call from the abductors, but no word ever came. In the pit, the children had been trapped for 12 hours. The small amount of food left by the captors was gone, and the fans moving air into the room had stopped working. As time passed, some of the children became angry and agitated. One small boy began angrily kicking stones in the trailer's base, stones that acted as leverage for the wooden beams holding up the ceiling. 
The beams came loose as the rocks were kicked away, and the roof began buckling under pressure. And there's uh, some pictures, actually, that just shows that this roof of this trailer could have just came down at any point, killing all of them. As the roof shifted, the seams of the trailer began to buckle. Loud creaking filled the compartment along with flying dust and the screams of 26 terrified children. And obviously, children, as it is, have such a warped sense of time. I mean, being in there at that point for, for 12, 12 hours, hours seemed like an eternity yeah. for a child. Oh, totally. And there's no way for them to know what time it was. And there was no light in the trailer. They don't even know what time of day it is. And as the walls continued to cave in, the group became desperate to try to get out of this prison that they're in. It was either try to escape or run the risk of the walls collapsing and potentially crushing them. So the group began gathering all the mattresses from the floor and stacking them below the manhill cover. And from there, they would take turns standing on the mattresses and on each other's shoulders as well, pushing on the seal, desperately trying to seek a way out. I mean, just pure terror. And at one point, 14-year-old Michael took a turn at moving the cover. He strained as the children around him cheered him on, yelling that they could see the cover moving. And Ed sprung into action and held the manhole open as Michael wedged a piece of wood into the gap that he had created. He pressed on it and finally managed to shift the heavy cover enough that he could fit through the opening that he had created. And of course, the children cheered, but unfortunately, that joy was short-lived because Michael soon realized that the kidnappers had surrounded the entire manhole cover with a wooden box and partially filled it with dirt and heavy truck batteries. The box was barely big enough for a child to fit in, but Michael was determined to save his schoolmates. He slipped into the small space and clawed at the dirt and debris surrounding him. And for what felt like hours, Michael worked through the blockade before him. All the while, he worried that the abductors might be waiting outside the pit with their guns in hand. So, I mean, very brave for a 14-year-old boy. But, you know, he knew he had to do something or else they were all going to die. At this point, they're, they're desperate to escape their prison. And so what what they actually ended up doing, which was extremely smart, was they took the uh, mattress springs, like the box springs mm-hmm. that were down there with them, and they started breaking them apart so that they could get like pieces of wood. And Michael had climbed up to the as as high as he could possibly go to where essentially like the lid was was on them, and he took this piece of wood and just started bashing the top of it because it was a piece of wood above them as well he just kept over and over again hitting it until he started breaking away pieces of it and then michael he with his 14 year old strength just starts ripping the wood apart incredible and he realized that the more that he did this uh dirt because obviously there's dirt on top of them so the dirt would then fall into the hole and he kept pushing all the dirt back into the hole which would clear it from on top of them it was really, really smart, and th- this this was just so difficult for him to do. I mean, 14 years old, and he's just doing this over and over and over again until he finally breaks open a hole large enough that he can climb out. But really, Michael is the one who created the escape for everybody underground. And suddenly, Michael and the other children were blinded by a sudden beam of sunlight and a burst of fresh air, which had to have been so amazing in that moment. And though free, 
the kids were still worried about the possibility that their captors could be nearby waiting to attack. Bravely, Michael was the first to leave the hole, and what he saw amazed him. Nothing but rolling California hills and not a person in sight. Michael quickly informed the others that it was safe to leave, and one by one, Ed helped lift each child out of the trailer before climbing out himself. And by this point, it was around 8 p.m. on July 16th. The group then started wandering, trying to find a single sign of outside life. None of the victims obviously knew where they were, but they only had to travel a few hundred yards before they saw large pieces of manufacturing equipment. And one victim described the machines as something out of the Flintstones, which was surprisingly accurate. The group was wandering around a functioning mine, also known as a rock quarry. And turns out they were buried on the grounds of this quarry. Now, luckily, during this time, and this was a huge miracle for them, a quarry employee was just finishing up a welding job, and he saw the kids in the distance and assumed it was trespassers. So he pushed the alarm button. Ed was able to confront him and tell him what was going on, and the group was brought to the quarry's rock shack, and shortly after, a panicked phone call was made to the local sheriff's office. And obviously, the sheriff's office is thrilled to hear from them and immediately went to the quarry and transported each of them by a prison bus to the Santa Rita Rehabilitation Center in Alameda County, California. And by this point, they were 100 miles away from Chowchilla. And at the prison, the kids were given jumpsuits to change into, and the smaller children had to roll their sleeves and legs up multiple times just to move around. They sat around and ate snacks while local sheriffs took them one by one for questioning and medical evaluations. In total, the victims would spend four hours waiting in the jail before finally being placed on a Greyhound bus back to Chowchilla Police Station. The children arrived home at 4 a.m. on July 17, 1976, 36 hours after being abducted. As the Greyhound bus pulled up, the children were overwhelmed by the sheer number of people waiting outside the bus doors. Reporters, cameramen, local citizens, and police all rushed to the door to ask the kids questions and take their pictures as they passed. The children were led through the tight crowd and into a building where their worried parents were eagerly awaiting their return. Despite all the horrible things that the children and Ed had been through, it was nothing short of a miracle that all of them were returned home safely. We've got a couple clips we want to show you from this moment, starting with them just announcing that the kids were found. Confirmed by the Alameda County Sheriff. It was confirmed by the Alameda County Sheriff that the children have been found in a quarry. That's all the information I have now. I could, you give me five more minutes, I'll get some more details. How are they? Are they okay? It is reported that they are well. Some are, uh, have been exposed, but they're in good health. Are they all there? Yes. Did they get some people? If you give me five more minutes, I'll get some Did they get the people? Did they arrest the people who apparently are responsible? No, they are still looking for the captives of the children. And then this next clip is of Jennifer Brown's mother speaking to the press. Mrs. Brown, your your children are safe now. They're on their way back here. What has been the worst thing, the worst thing of this whole ordeal? I don't know. The worst thing of the whole ordeal. The fact that the children were frightened, they, that's the worst thing to me. Is it, What has it done to them? You know, what happened? You think something has happened to them? No, I don't mean physically, but what what terror that they might have gone through. I was hoping 
and still do that. Maybe they were sedated part of the time because the terror might not be so much for them. Did you have any reason to believe they were sedated or anything like that? No, not really. Uh, it was just a hope. Kind of. Somebody suggested that maybe they were, and I just grasped right onto that right away. That's great. They're they're sedated, and from then on, I assumed that they were. I'm probably the weirdest of all of them because asking myself what's wrong with me either I'm in shock or something but I never wavered from it and I was down here what until about 8 30 tonight and when I left I told the constable and the sheriff the sheriffs and all the ones that we knew because we know most everybody around so they're all right you mark my words they're going to find them and they're going to be okay I have no doubt of it and that was my parting words as I jovial skipped along my way and I felt that way all the time I was a little, I was apprehensive, and I don't mean I was lighthearted, but I knew they were all right. So this next clip is going to be just some footage of the kids coming off the bus. Well, they're here, they've been fed, they've, they've been cleaned up, uh, they've been given clothing, we're talking to them. Uh, well, we, uh, I would generally describe them in very high spirit. Yeah. We ask who wants to be talked to next, and they all put up their hand, and they're very jovial, and they are just in fine spirits. I think what's interesting about that clip is just the comments that the reporters yeah. made, like, oh, they're all in fine spirits. They, sh- they seem good to go. Dust off. Back to normal life. How about the fact that they just went through this traumatic experience, and they're probably just happy to see their loved ones again? But nobody's thinking about the underlying trauma that they went through and maybe be good to like let them go home and sleep and before just bombarding them with questions. Yeah. And I mean, to give them credit here, it it was such a different time. Like people just had no understanding. Well, I also think like, yeah, this is terrible, but compared to what could have happened, it's actually an incredible outcome. Mm -hmm. And so many people were absolutely terrified. The public was horrified. The families were horrified. So I think they're trying to like calm people down and like, yeah. you know, say it's okay. The kids are okay to some extent. There's this, yeah, definite relief that is washing all over all of them after the thoughts of what could have happened. I'm, sh- I'm sure they're just like, oh my God, they're all okay. So yeah, not much time to really, really think it through. Yeah, I guess that's true. Here's the bus driver uh, speaking a little bit. So we're in a dark spot in that van. This- and we got to this one spot. He run through some brush and stuff. And here it's scratching the pickup and stuff. Van. He left the cooler on for us for a while. And then he shut it off. And we thought we were going to suffocate in that for a while. The thing is all canvassed over. Then he unloaded us through the, from the bus driver first. So I got out. And he asked me my name and my age. Then he wanted my pants and my boots, so I had given them. Then he unloaded all the kids and asked their name and age. And they had this building all lined with wire, big old mesh wire. And they stood on the outside. We hear them cutting the wires, and the ceiling started to cave in and everything. We thought we were going to let us out. So later in the afternoon there, we never did hear them cutting the wires or no more. So me and a couple of boys decided we'd better start digging. We were going to lose our lives there, same as getting, if we dug ourselves out. So when we started to move this steel plate, we couldn't hardly move it because it had 
two great big old batteries on top of it. One about the batteries I couldn't even lift by myself. I got the kid to help me. We we had to pile up mattresses and stuff, get up close enough to the hole to get it out. Then we got that plate up, got this and everything else to try to cool off and go back up and dig some more. I know this part's a little clip heavy, but we just thought it was best for you to hear some of the experiences straight from those who went through it. So obviously the FBI, once they found out where the quarry was over in Livermore, California, they began investigating the crime scene. And as you can imagine, the media was all over them. Many of the children gave interviews after the abduction. Two victims, Jennifer Brown and Michael Marshall, even sat and allowed their parents to record them retelling their story. The children were celebrated in the media and called incredibly resilient. Many believed they were unaffected by this horrific crime they had just been through. They even held an Ed Ray and Children's Day. There was a parade and Ed rode a float down Robertson Boulevard to the fairgrounds with all the kids who kept hugging him. There was a prayer and a country feast and they ate lots of beef and there were marching bands and equestrian units and lots of plaques and donations given out. At one point, all the kids went on a trip to Disneyland. This is kind of like I get their therapy in a way. Yeah, I mean. Which is ridiculous to, to say. But They spoke a lot about this in the documentary as well. Just how miserable of a day it was at Disney. Because it was just like, this is not solving anything, people. Like, I get the sentiment that they wanted to, you know, take them to the best place on earth. Happiest but, I mean, place just, on earth, whatever they call yeah, it. Whatever, yeah, whatever, but just the wrong time well, we're just trying to mask the reality of what really happened to them yeah. and obviously like once they've had some time to rest and kind of recover a bit all of those memories of what happened to them start flooding in and deeply affected everybody involved obviously their parents did the best that they could to support their children but there was really not a lot of resources available to them they didn't bring counselors or anything like that i think uh a psychiatrist ended up coming eventually but many of the children suffered from severe anxiety after the kidnapping and would later be diagnosed with ptsd many of them were experiencing horrific night terrors jennifer brown's mother told 48 hours during an interview that her daughter would come into their room in the middle of the night screaming but not fully awake when they woke her up jennifer would say she dreamt that she and her friends were being lined up and shot Larry Parks suffered from nightmares as well, often dreaming of falling into an endless black hole. He would scream until his mother came into the room, and he would cry into her arms, unable to express to her what had happened in his dreams. At the time of the abduction, there were very few services available for victims of violent crimes. The first three U.S. institutions of that nature had been created in 1972, only four years prior. Two of those were rape crisis centers, and one known as Aid for Victims of Crime was for victims of any violent crime. However, it was in Missouri, thousands of miles away from Chowchilla. So it didn't take long for FBI officials to dig up this temporary prison made by these abductors. And the trailer, which read Palo Alto Transfer and Storage Company, was taken in to search for clues that could lead back to these abductors. And unfortunately, there was no way to determine who owned the trailer or even where it had come from. But luckily, the quarry security personnel had information that quickly put investigators on the right trail. A few months before the kidnappings happened, security officers at the quarry had actually run off three young men attempting to dig a hole out in the middle of the quarry. And one of these men was 24-year-old Frederick or Fred Newhall Woods IV, the son of the rock quarry owner. Pretty sketch. And at this point, Fred was someone that the investigators were already looking into. 
In order for the trailer to have been buried on the quarry grounds, it was clear that someone involved had to have a key to the quarry gate. So when investigators looked into Fred, they discovered something else. Turns out he had been arrested two years before the abduction for grand auto theft. And not only that, but he was arrested with two accomplices, a man named James Schoenfeld and his younger brother, Richard Schoenfeld. And investigators thought that it was strange for these three specifically to be suspects due to the fact they came from wealthy families and were well-educated and lived in some of the most affluent suburbs in San Francisco. But obviously, just because you're rich and well-educated doesn't mean you can't commit horrific crimes. But this was 1976, and they had a pretty, I don't know, basic view of the world back then. So let's take a look at the history of these families. So Frederick Newell Woods IV is the heir to the Newell and Woods family fortune. The two families were some of the most prominent in California, and his only sibling was a sister who was institutionalized due to having Down syndrome. His middle name, Newell, comes from Henry Mayo Newell, who traveled to California in 1850 with the miners to strike it rich. Henry formed the Newell Land and Farming Company, which his children incorporated in 1883. And by 1976, the family was making $80 million a year in ranching oil and land, which is $370 million today because inflation is insane. And it was Henry Newell's land that became Santa Clarita and Valencia. The oldest community in the area, Newell, is even named after him. Fred's dad, Frederick Newell Woods III, owns a large estate in the wealthy Bay Area town of Portola Valley called the Hawthorns, which is 79 acres. Frederick III lives with his wife, Frances, and his mom. Fred IV lives in an apartment garage around the back. He also had a trust fund that may or may not be worth over $100 million, which he shares with his sister. Now, Richard and James Schoenfeld came from a wall family in Atherton, California. There's little known about their childhood, but the men had no prior violent offenses outside of the Grand Theft Auto charge. James and Fred had been business partners at the time of their first charge. The two men ran a used car business together. Fred also has another business with another friend named David Boston. David was a filmmaking major at San Jose State. David and Fred started a partnership in 1972 called Townhouse Enterprises. They had a plan that Fred would flip cars and use the money they made to finance David's projects. And the two of them had plans to become producers. At one point, Fred came up with an idea, wrote it down in a letter, and pitched it to David. Fred got this idea from watching the movie Dirty Harry which Dirty Harry is a thriller movie that came out back in 1971. The overall plot of the movie is a man referred to as Scorpio who snipes at innocent victims and demands ransom through notes left at the crime scene. And there's actually a scene at the end of this movie of uh, somebody taking over a bus full of children. So you can wonder where maybe Fred was inspired from. And so obviously the movie made a major impact on Fred and he started brainstorming what it would be like to create his own heist. At first, the three just thought the idea would make for a great movie. However, Fred soon started taking this idea more seriously. Fred thought that if they were to come up with a good enough heist, he had the potential to make a lot of money off of it from ransom. But in order to make that money, there needed to be more than one victim. If there were more victims, then the government would be willing to pay more money. And if the victims happened to be children, the government would be willing to pay even more money. And obviously, taking a school bus is owned by the school district, so he kind of connected the school district back to the state, which is technically true. 
So that's where he's kind of come up with this idea of basically demanding a ransom from the state of California. Fred then starts talking about this idea to James and Richard. James started to journal all of their plans to keep track of everything. At one point in his journal entry, James wrote, quote, I wasn't going to commit any crime, risk my life, or risk my reputation for anything less than a million, so a bank robbery wouldn't work. A drug deal wouldn't work. The state pays us the ransom. We're happy forever. All of our troubles are solved, and we let the victims go. Everybody's happy. Everybody's happy. Okay, dude. The fact that they're really thinking that this could actually work. Mm-hmm. And Dummies. using a movie for inspiration mm-hmm. for this plan is not surprising, but yeah, I mean, how dumb are you? All the best plans come from movie inspo, don't you know that? Of course. Because, uh, of course, the state's just going to pay you a bunch of money and then be like, all right, yep. thanks for bringing the kids home. Now, go. have a great life. Deal done. It's just insane. 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 God. At first, they contemplated kidnapping kids in San Francisco. However, they came to the conclusion that the city was way too big and populated to get away with this type of crime. It'd be much better to do it somewhere rural with as few people as possible. They figured somewhere in the Central Valley would be the easiest drive and their best bet. So in late 1975, they traveled around visiting various rural towns, trying to decide which one would be best. And they ultimately decided on Chowchilla, had a small population and was in the middle of nowhere. At one point, they went to Chowchilla's annual rodeo to scope out the place and get a sense of the town. And that's when they came across Ed's bus route and started studying it. Per James's journal, this is how the three planned for things to go down. They would need a bus, a plane, and three vans. One to get Fred and Rick to Chowchilla for the hijacking and two more at the hidden location to transport the kids from the bus to the quarry. And the journal continues. Conceal the kids and the vans and then go somewhere else to collect the money. From there, Rick would get a plane to take James to a small, uncontrolled airport. They would then meet Fred, and the three of them would hijack a plane. Genius plan. And then, quote, Rick and Fred load the dummies into the plane with parachutes, and an extra parachute, of course. Jim is taking possession of the money, thus a state-employed secretary will be appointed to bring the money in three brown paper parcels and instructed to dot, 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 and that's it. They just don't finish the sentence there. And another section of the notebook details out other random stuff that they had to remember. One of them is to make sure to burn the journal. (laughs) Whoops, they clearly never did that. Now, if all of this sounds really stupid to you, that's because it is. These were not the brightest of bulbs. And clearly, they really did not think these things through at all. I mean, it's just like. Yeah, the fact that they just they executed on this plan before destroying all the evidence that would then link them to the crime is just a major misstep on their part. It's funny for how stupid they are, how smart they thought they were. Yeah. They thought this was pretty airtight. They really did. Genius. So over the fall of 1975, the three of them continued to prepare. They purchased three patrol vans and moved them to a warehouse in San Jose. And then later on, authorities found a Cadillac spray-painted black. And like blacked out yeah. all over. It, mm-hmm. It's pretty wild looking. They also found encrypted writing samples, tons of two-by-fours and mattresses. So basically everything that is at the quarry is found at this warehouse later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they really thought they were, they were genius in, in this plan. Mm-hmm. The encrypted writing samples is kind of bizarre. Like the amount of time 
that they put into the plan was very evident. Yeah. Um, but not well executed. Nope. If you know anything about us, you know we love animals. We have a lot of pets. And specifically, we have three cats that have been with us for a long, long time. And there's just so many good things to say about our cats. We, we love them so much. They're all really, really great with our uh, daughter, which is awesome. Like our daughter loves to go up and grab one of our cats, Tucker, yeah. and like hug him and <laughs> kind of pick him up. He's so patient. I can't believe it. He would never like scratch or, you know, hiss. At- I've never seen him hiss ever. But anyway, we love our cats so much. And so it's so important to us that they get the best possible care possible. And that includes their diet. Absolutely. And that's where Smalls has really changed the game. You know, we've we've been trying a bunch of different types of food for our dogs and they eat a really, really high quality dog food now. And, you know, they've had fresh food before, but there really hasn't been anything on the market for cats up to this point. It's just been dry food or wet food, basically canned. But this Smalls brand has really changed the game. What's great about Smalls cat food is that it's protein packed, which is great because Tucker or our oldest one, he is yeah. a slim one. He, yeah, he's only six pounds. Six pounds. He's always been tiny small. guy. But what's great is that we can give him smalls, which is packed with protein and it's made with preservative free ingredients you'd find in your fridge. And best of all, it's delivered right to your door. Smalls was actually started back in 2017 by a couple of guys home cooking cat food in small batches for their friends. And a few short years later, they've served millions of meals to cats around the world. After making the switch to Smalls, 90% of cat owners reported overall health improvements, which is a huge deal, especially as they kind of get into that uh, later stage of life. It's always good to give them the best quality food you can. And the team at Smalls is so confident that your cat will love their product that you can try it risk-free, which means they'll refund you if your cat won't eat their food. Because sometimes cats are just picky and doesn't matter how good the food is. I mean, you could put uh, a piece of delicious salmon in front of our cats and they wouldn't eat it no but they love smalls they always get super psyched when smalls comes out and they they literally can smell it all the way from upstairs they come running downstairs to eat and it's always devoured almost immediately so it's 2024 are you still feeding your cat kibble head to smalls.com slash mile higher and use promo code mile higher at checkout for 50 percent off your first order plus free shipping that's the best offer you'll find but you have to use our code mile higher for 50% off your first order. One last time, that's promo code MileHire for 50% off your first order plus free shipping. Thank you, Smalls, for sponsoring this episode. So then the three of them went to Fred's Quarry and buried a moving van, cutting in holes for vents and toilets, and then they reinforced the ceiling with lumber so it wouldn't collapse after it was buried, although it nearly did. They decided that they would have $5 million in ransom delivered to a drop site in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Sheriff Ed Bates described this plan as, quote, pretty ingenious. They were going to drive up the coast to someplace heavily wooded, then go back inland and have airplanes patrol for 200 miles up and down the area until they saw a certain series of lights indicating the drop site. Then the money was to be dropped on them and they'd be gone. That's it. And by the time they had the money, nobody would be able to get there. You just can't stake out 200 miles. Seems like the sheriff has kind of given them some credit here that, you know, like had they been able to get this far in the plan that it would have been difficult to catch them, especially if they didn't know what the plan was. Right. Like, yeah, staking out 200 miles. I mean, that's that's uh, pretty difficult. So they, they definitely thought through 
almost everything, almost every scenario. And it's just, what's crazy is that they've spent so much money planning this yep. and time planning this, and they never got anything for it. No, They literally lost money and then ultimately like lost a lot of their time. And are about to lose more of their time. Mm-hmm. They also purchased an x-ray machine from a Navy surplus disposal station in Alameda in case the ransom money was bugged. Priority number one. They also made homemade bulletproof vests out of scrap metal, and Fred rented a trailer in Reno for a safe house and got a passport under the fake name Ralph Snyder. So anyways, let's get back to the search for the kidnappers. Once the three figured out that the victims had escaped, they all agreed that they needed to get out of the area ASAP. They drove to the warehouse where they stashed their vans and grabbed whatever they could, and James and Fred drove off in a 1963 Chrysler towards the trailer they had waiting, waiting for them in Reno. They would stay there before making their final escape to Canada. But Rick went home, and the guilt had gotten to him, and he was planning on turning himself in. Once he was home, he confessed to his dad. And what do you think his dad did? Set him up with a lawyer, of course. After obtaining the warrant for the Woods estate, which was a mansion, FBI agents and local investigators tore through the property and they discovered an outrageous amount of evidence. You guys, this included one of the guns that were used in the abduction, a ransom note asking for $2.5 million for the children's return, a fast food bag with the names of the victims written on it. Gotta Jack love in the box, that. actually. Mm-hmm. Yep, Jack in the box. And a document titled Plan that described in detail how the men would, you know, pull off this abduction. It even discussed different ways that the abduction could go wrong and what to do in each instance. And all in all, detectives found evidence that showed the men had been planning this abduction for about a year and a half. That's a lot of long time. Mm-hmm. Not long enough. No, clearly not long enough. Yeah. Later, investigators discovered that the ransom note they found was simply a draft, and the men had actually intended to demand $5 million from the state of California in return for releasing the children. However, when the men attempted to call in the ransom, the call board was busy with all those people calling in with tips. So they decided to catch some Zs and try calling again later. However, when they woke up, they saw on the news that their abductees had escaped. So big. How they miss that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How they not figure like, if we abduct if they... all these children, what if we can't get a hold of the authorities to make our ransom claim? Yep. Or, or like, why didn't they leave their ransom like out at the quarry? Like very obvious, like on yeah. a sign or something that's like, I get well to be fair they never thought that they were going to escape for one. Yeah, I mean so they figured they had a lot of time which if they were really planning on the everybody down there in that underground trailer not dying, they really didn't have that much time. So I just don't know. They just their logic is severely flawed. I don't know what they were thinking. Like Yeah. Well, they severely underestimated the the willpower to live, you know, and how these people, especially, you know, Michael and Ed just took matters into their own hand and saved them all. But obviously, since they were all able to escape, no ransom request was ever made. Boo-hoo for them. After discovering the mountain of evidence in the Woods estate, arrest warrants were issued for Frederick Woods, James Schoenfeld, and Richard 
Schoenfeld. As we said, Richard was planning to turn himself in, and eight days after the kidnapping, he did just that. James and Fred, however, weren't going down so easily. Fred ended up using his phony passport and flew up to Vancouver, leaving James behind with no good options. So he's like bails on his friend too. James then fled to Idaho because of its proximity to a Canadian border crossing. But on the 18th, when he tried to go into Canada, 100 miles north, he was turned away by a border patrol because he was acting too sketchy. Driving back into Idaho, James started to get really freaked out. He was too exhausted, so he decided to drive to Spokane to try and sell his guns at a sporting goods store. He then tried entering Canada once again, but was refused because he still had two guns in the car. He turned back to Idaho and then sold them. After this, he traded in his 63 Chrysler for a 50 Chrysler van. By this point, James was in really bad condition. He hadn't slept in five days and was becoming weak. So James decided he was going to head home and also turn himself in. However, he ended up being pulled over thanks to an all-points bulletin out on his license plate, and he was pulled over in Menlo Park, a city in the Bay Area about 133 miles northwest of Chowchilla. Meanwhile, Fred got to Vancouver at 6 p.m. the Saturday after the children's escape and checked into the St. Francis Hotel. During this time, Fred wrote some letters, some of them being to his screenwriter friend David. He told him that his crime would make for a great movie of the week. At one point, he wrote, quote, My ending is not exciting enough so you might have to kill some people or something. If you do make it into a film, I want a percentage of it. You make it up. I don't care how much. But be fair. Be fair. It's just, I mean, it's kind of comical at this point. Mm -hmm. But little did Fred know that this letter would contribute to his downfall. The FBI got a tip about these letters, and so some undercover officers from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police staked out the main Vancouver post office. They knew Fred had been sending letters under the name Richard Snyder. They waited and waited, and eventually they saw Fred. He walked in, checked his mail, didn't get any, then turned around to leave, and this is when police moved in and arrested him. So Dum Dum and Dumber were held in the local jail while they awaited trial. And during this time, some local farmers pitched an idea to share fates. They said, quote, Ed, we know you, and we know you're a tough guy on crime. What would you do if some of us came into your jail and took these three out and hung them? What do you think of that? Honestly, in the wake of this, I'd probably be feeling the same same type of way. Yeah, I mean, I get definitely where. Obviously, that cannot be done. But no, it's not the old west anymore. But no, the the anger. People are pissed. I mean, yeah, this really pissed off of everybody course. in the community. They were very very upset by by this, and they they wanted justice. But Sheriff Bates responded and said, "I'm sorry, I'd have to kill you. No one is taking these prisoners out of jail except for by lawful authority." In addition, someone drove by the jail and shot out all the windows with a shotgun. So, yes, as you can see, people were super pissed. Fred, James, and Rick were all unharmed. On July 25th, 1977, Fred, Rick, and James pleaded guilty to the 27 counts of kidnapping for ransom without inflicting bodily injury. In exchange, the prosecution dropped the 18 counts of armed robbery against them. But they also were given five charges of kidnapping with bodily harm. In the state of California, if you were found guilty of this charge, you would get mandatory life sentence without the possibility of parole. Therefore, these three obviously pleaded not guilty. And as a result, the case would go to trial. And all three of them waived the option for a jury. Therefore, their fate was left in the hands of Superior Court Judge Leo Dagan. The case moved forward to trial and the victims began to face their captors once again, which, as you can imagine, would be 
God, just beyond difficult having to look at these guys in the eye. I mean, for some, that's that's very uh, cathartic and healing and necessary. But for for many, that is just. I can't believe they difficult. they brought the kids in though. Yeah, that's just. I feel like that's that crazy to me. Almost re-traumatizes them. Oh, it for sure does. You know, obviously in the moment they might be like want to do it, but I feel they could have done a better job protecting these children after the fact. Like why why make them do it all over again? And I get it's part of like the legal legal process, but in this particular case, I don't know if that was the right move or not to have them now like be face to face with them. So the trial finally began in Oakland in the fall of 77 and this trial got tons of media attention. Here are some clips from the defense team speaking on the trial. Yeah, some of the shit they say is yeah. outlandish. Everything that we have uh, have presented on their defense uh, has been uh, the common accepted uh, defense procedure. And there's been nothing that has been uh, bizarre or absurd. And the idea that uh, anybody, any defense counsel, could defend the, a charge of this magnitude without raising these uh, defenses and without being guilty of gross malpractice is absurd. Once this hearing is over with, will it be possible for these defendants to get a fair trial here? In my opinion, uh, it will not. That's why we sought to uh, exclude the public and the press from the hearing. That's the only way we can determine if the kidnapping actually did do traumatic injury to the uh, children in question. We can't. We have to have before and after. Well, do you, do you feel happy or, or satisfied with Judge uh, Deegan's plan to keep everything confidential until uh, someone decides a particular child is going to testify. You can have enough time to go over that case. I assume that he will give us enough time to go over the case before he sets it down for a formal hearing on those issues. Um, he said he would give us, uh, he would open it up if they chose to make an issue of the particular children, uh, whether they were injured uh, by the trauma. So therefore, he would uh, he would give us adequate time. So I, I'm satisfied with. Do it. you think it important to the defense to go into the medical history of each of the children involved in the kidnap? Yes, if they chose to uh, proceed as they have now uh, chosen to do so. Yes, it'd be very definite. Have to. Does that also include emotional problems as well as physical problems? Because that's a part of the prosecution's claim. Well, there's very little, as you, as uh, you gentlemen who have seen the transcript uh, know, there's very little physical damage at all, and practically it's it's non-existent. Everything has to be on a psychological basis. Idiot! God, just belittling their experience so much. Very little physical damage, if if not non-existent. Isn't the brain a physical part of your body? Yeah, well, so isn't that they certainly technically, didn't see it that way back then. No, they're like psychological. Well, yeah, psychological comes from the brain. So right. technically that you could argue that that is bodily harm. Oh, for sure you can argue that. That but... the trauma your brain sustains is bodily harm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, what do you think about that, Janelle? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I, I don't even know how else to put it. I think it's ridiculous that he's like, well, they had basically saying like, they had some scrapes and bruises and... Yeah, but fine. Dust them off. But yeah, like the psychological harm. But we need to like compare them how they were before and after. Oh, it's ridiculous. Because obviously his goal is to to get them off of yeah, the bodily of harm charges. Of course. And for him to say like if they choose to make issue of that. What? It's just it's so frustrating to see. Here's some footage of the men walking into court. Yeah. Take a look at these fools. So for now, the judicial process for one of the Chowchilla kidnapping suspects is underway. 
And from early indications, it looks like it's going to be a long and hard legal battle. Bob Murphy, KCRA News, Chowchilla. Here they are. Young, too. 26 school children and their bus driver are a year older this week than they were last year when their yellow school bus was commandeered in Chowchilla, allegedly by three young men from the San Francisco Peninsula. That case has still not come to trial and probably won't for some time. I think it's crazy, too, that everyone's talking about the whether or not there's psychological trauma for the children. And obviously, that's the biggest concern here, too. But like, what about the parents that went through this extremely traumatic experience, not knowing where their children are, imagining all the worst case scenarios? It's just it's made to be so lighthearted the way they're all speaking about it. It's incredibly frustrating. Yeah, not to mention the long term damage that this caused mm-hmm. to these these families, which we'll we'll get into in a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but let's take a look at this clip of prosecutors speaking about how they believe this did, in fact, cause bodily harm. We think that under the California law that it's sufficient to show the confinement both in a van that's on the surface of the of the uh, ground and an underground van for a period of around 26 hours where you have conditions of total darkness of uh, not enough food or water, extremely hot conditions of panic among the children. We think that actually under the California case law, that should be enough to constitute bodily harm, even if you don't have broken bones. Psychological damage. Well, I think it, it just depends on what you mean by psychological damage. The judges ruled that we can't show psychological damage per se, but uh, we're trying to say that under the case law, when somebody can find someone uh, for that period of time in an underground uh, kind of a cavern, under those circumstances, that it does constitute bodily harm without having to get into the emotional effect. I think that's a great point. That is. They're under, that's not a, it's not like a normal place. It's not like they just kept them in a room in a house somewhere. Like they literally buried them underground in a moving van. Pitch black. And stripped them of their clothes, tiny vents, no water. Like that's all going to cause some form of bodily harm. Yeah. By definition. And so 16 months after their abduction, these kids actually did testify in court that in addition to the obvious emotional damage that was caused by Fred Woods and the Schoenfelds, they had also suffered physical damage to their bodies, including scrapes, cuts, and bruises. Jennifer Brown remembers the day that she testified in court and the kidnappers were just sitting to her left and giving her funny looks. Can't imagine what that was like. Let's hear from Jennifer herself talking about being in court with these men. Not really. You say they would give you this funny look. What did that make you feel? Scared. Really? Are you afraid of those men, do you think? No. Uh, Do you think that any of your friends or you have been hurt for a long time because of it? No, not really. Yeah, I think she's trying to to be brave as well and... Well, and it's like and you really understand a that. young child yeah. like that's not going to understand the questions that yeah. they're asking them. Mm-hmm. It's just like I think asking a kid like, "Was it hurt?" In her mind, she's like, "Looks around her, her on her body and is like, well, no, like right. you know, I have everything works still, but mm-hmm. she doesn't understand the emotional impact that this has on her and will continue to have on her." And I think it, it's a weird question. I, I agree. And it took these kids a long time, most of them, to to really understand how they had been affected mentally by this and how it continues on into their later lives. As most 
traumatic events in childhood. Right. Like it's right. not till you're an adult to when you're like, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> that actually is still with me today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It all resurfaces. One child was recalling her experiences inside the hole and she said she felt like the air was disappearing. God, that would have been terrifying. She quote said, it started getting hard to breathe. All I thought was the whole thing was going to cave in and we would be squished. The trial ended on December 15th and all three men ended up being convicted of abduction and causing bodily harm and were given life sentences without the possibility of parole. And this was obviously a huge relief to all of the victims and their families. Finally, their kidnappers were behind bars and they could start to try and move on with their lives and heal, but sadly, not for long. You guys have probably heard us say it a bunch of times now, but we absolutely love HelloFresh and we love that they have been a continual sponsor of the podcast. We really, really appreciate their support, but we truly do love and use HelloFresh. Yes, yes. We pay for our subscription on our own. We get four meals a week and we just absolutely love it because it saves us both time, money, and also stress. Yes. With our busy schedules, anything we can do to help us out with stress and it just helps us to eat better you know Mm -hmm. and you know a long time ago we used to order food all the time and that got super expensive and it's not the most nutritious but we love hellfresh (laughs) because it really is that simple because each hellfresh box is packed with farm fresh ingredients everything's pre-portioned ready to go i just take the bag out of the fridge dump the ingredients out and i can whip up a home-cooked meal in like 30 to 40 minutes usually like last night we had a parmesan chicken oh yeah that was really good which is really good you put sour cream on the chicken uh cutlets and then you put cheese breadcrumbs and you bake it with some green beans some crispy Mm. potatoes the green beans were really good always a fire meal and our daughter loves it too which is great she was really enjoying the the potatoes and the chicken last night Mm mm-hmm What's great, too, is that HelloFresh has expanded into breakfast as well. They say breakfast is the most important meal of the day, and HelloFresh agrees. In fact, they're giving all subscribers free breakfast for life. That means you'll enjoy a totally free breakfast item with every single HelloFresh delivery, which is awesome. Not only do they got you covered for pretty much every meal at this point, but you've got sides and extras mm-hmm. and desserts. I mean, you snacks, can, snacks, seasonal change-ups. They've got you covered food-wise. Yeah, they do. For every occasion and there's different serving sizes so you can do two servings which is what we do right now eventually we'll move up to the family size which i think is like four servings yep and i mean it is so cost effective and the food is always delicious sometimes i'm blown away at how good these recipes come together so if you want to get started with HelloFresh, go to hellofresh.com slash free and use the code mile free for free breakfast for life That's one breakfast item per box while subscription is active. Free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash MileHireFree with code MileHireFree. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Because just four years after these three men were convicted of abduction and causing bodily harm, their lawyers appealed the eight counts of causing bodily harm. And the appellate court acknowledged that the men's crimes were horrific but they did not believe that bodily harm caused to the victims met the threshold for bodily harm charges. And so they won their appeal and they were resentenced to life in prison, but this time with the possibility of 
parole, which is just such a slap in the face to all of these children and their families. Which means that every one to two years, the men were allowed a parole hearing. The first took place only six years after the abduction. With each hearing that the victims attended, they were re-traumatized by Fred and the Schoenfelds. Many of the victims stopped attending the hearings, everyone except for Jody Heffington. Jody fought for years to attend every hearing she could and remind the parole board of the terror the men had caused her and the other children that fateful day in 1976. During one of these parole hearings, James Schoenfeld explained more about why the men had chosen to commit their crime. According to James, despite their affluent upbringing, the three were in serious debt. They had borrowed a lot of money from their parents for their new business ventures. They wanted to make some quick cash in order to not have to rely on their family anymore. They wanted to make a lot of money quickly and knew that kidnapping multiple children would earn them a higher ransom. They also believed children would be easier to abduct and more likely to be compliant. By 2014, there had been more than 60 parole hearings. Jody Heffington had attended nearly all of them. Despite her efforts to try and keep them behind bars, Richard Schoenfeld was paroled in 2012. In 2015, his brother James was paroled as well. The two men had been model prisoners, which helped them earn their early release. Fred Woods, on the other hand, was constantly breaking the rules in prison. He was caught with contraband multiple times, which helped to keep him in prison longer than the other men. Yeah, this dude would literally get cell phones, and he was literally running businesses while in prison. Mm-hmm. He had a car business. He had a land business. He, he like just kept all of his sketchy businesses running during this entire time in prison. It, he... There's just no signs that he took this seriously. It was just a major inconvenience for him, and he never stopped chasing money. In 2018, Jody attended Fred's 15th parole hearing. Fred attempted to gain sympathy from the parole board, claiming he had a rough childhood. During her statement, Jody said, quote, To listen to him talk about his poor childhood, I don't know if I want to laugh, cry, cuss him out, or what, because where did my childhood go? Jody told Fred he wasn't a kidnapper, he was a thief. A thief of lives and of happiness and joy the kids and their families had before the abduction. Yeah, that's that's truly, truly offensive. I had a rough childhood. Shut up. More like you just didn't live up to your parents' standards. And Which I'm not saying that like just because he's wealthy or whatever, that he couldn't have had a rough childhood. But rough in comparison to what he put these children through is a joke. Yeah, to to bring that up. Yeah. In a trial like this, I mean, it's just grasping at straws. It's so stupid. But like, yeah, he probably people who hurt others often have been hurt themselves. So. I mean, I'm sure it's true. It's just totally inappropriate and bizarre to try to use that as part of your defense. I just am like, how is the parole board like, dude, you're running all these businesses like still had like a gold mine company going, had a mm-hmm. Christmas tree farm going, his car business. Like, it's just. Clearly, he's not learning anything. Like, where's the re? Where's the rehabilitation? Where's the proof that he's like changed his ways or changed his life around? I don't see any of that. Because there's not. So, as you can imagine, Jody Heffington dealt with lifelong emotional trauma caused by the 1976 abduction. During multiple interviews, she went into detail about how difficult it was to try and pretend like she was doing okay when she never truly was. She felt that the pain caused by Fred and the Schoenfelds had taken something from her spirit that she could never get back. It caused her to lash out at those she loved, and she felt that she was never able to be a good daughter, sister, or friend, or even a mother because of it. Though her family adored Jody and wanted the best for her, her life came to a tragic end, and a short end in 2021 at the age of 55. Um, I don't think there was ever an official 
uh, cause of death release, but I believe Jody's son was he was interviewed in the documentary and he said that it was alcoholism uh, that ultimately led to her her early death. Um, very very tragic. Very very sad. And likely trying to cope with yeah. Well, trying to did. escape. And she's not the only one who turned to substance abuse to try and forget about these horrific memories of what happened to them. I know Michael. Yeah. Um, yeah, Michael's story is really sad. And then very recently here in 2022, 14 months after the death of Jody Heffington, Fred Woods had his 18th parole hearing, and this time he was released. And he has a big smile on his face in this picture. And years after the Chowchilla kidnapping, the victims were still feeling the effects of what they had been through. Larry Park, who was only six when he was abducted, struggled with drug addiction throughout his 20s and 30s. And when he was at the depths of despair, he recalls calling out to God and asking him to help him move on. And eventually he did get clean and was sober for over a decade. He even made the point to forgive the men who abducted him, which, God, that's some serious strength to be able to do that. And he would later meet with the men in prison and tell them that he forgave them for everything they had done. I mean, that that's just so, so impressive to me. So much strength. He told 48 Hours that the moment that he did it, a sense of relief washed over him and he finally felt free from what had happened to him. And that's something that we hear many victims talk about. I mean, everyone has their own different approach to healing and what works for them. I always find it really incredible when people are able to forgive, especially in person like that, and how it helps them heal. And I'm sure that's that just wouldn't be the case for everyone. And I don't know how I would personally be in that situation, but I do think it's some some serious strength that Larry had. I can imagine the anger can consume you. Yeah. You know, for the um, for many years, you know, you want to just destroy these people that did this to you, and realizing that there's no good that's ever going to come from feeling or thinking that way, and also, obviously, the if you do want, go and do that, you're going to end up in prison yourself, and then, you know, how does that really help the situation at all? So, and to be clear, I'm definitely not saying that that is the only way to to free yourself no, or no, no, that's no. the only option to heal i think it's to interesting how your... it, how it works for some people and yeah i don't know how i don't know what i would do in their situation i just can't even imagine but here's a clip of larry talking about his experience with all this i let go of this bitterness and this hatred that i had toward the kidnappers and you know i realized that all of the bitterness and all of the hatred that I could ever hold for them wasn't punishing them. It was killing me. Park met all his captors in prison. The Schoenfelds released several years back. And this man, who says he spent his life a victim, now also free. That's not me anymore. I want you to know I am victorious over this crime. There are victims, there are survivors, and there are those who are victorious. I think there's something to be said about taking your power back. Yeah. Like, you know, you can't control what happened to you, but the thing you do have control over is how you respond to it, how you react to it, and, and how you move forward. And by, you know, trying trying to take some of your power back and instead of, you know, a- allowing these people to continue to ruin your life, I think it's very empowering to say, 
no, I'm going to choose to try and forgive and therefore to give myself peace. Um, and obviously, like Kendall said, everyone's different and that doesn't work for everyone. But I, I, I certainly think that there's something to be said about once you go through something so traumatic and you're a victim to, to take control of what you can and take your power back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, especially when all of that is, you know, making you turn to other things to cope with it and escapes that are harmful to yourself. And like he said, it was literally killing him. Um, I think it makes sense to me why, why he went this route. But Michael, on the other hand, he, he deeply struggled after this, this happened. Yes. He actually struggled with um, alcoholism and it was a very difficult battle for him. However, he was able to get clean and start a career and a family, but he made it clear that he personally would never forgive his kidnappers, not necessarily for what they put him through, but for the pain and fear they caused his parents as well. Yeah, well, it like a, tore his family apart. Yeah. And so many of the other victims have said the same thing, that their families were never the same. Those that had siblings in this, their siblings completely changed and like distanced themselves from their families. Like relationships were completely shattered as a result of this both from the parental perspective, but also the sibling perspective as well. Yeah, the so, ripple effect is just massive. Yeah, something that I don't think these kidnappers ever for a second even thought about. And I think it's interesting to look at the two of them and how they approached their you know, path towards healing or trying to heal so differently. And I think they're both very valid ways. I completely understand um, you know, w- wanting to forgive and like taking your power back. And I think all oh, that's great. But yeah, some people are just so different and are just unable to forgive or don't want to forgive and don't believe that that is deserved or it just isn't possible for them to do. And I, I respect that as well. And I mean, I've never been through anything like this. So I I really can't imagine how I, what road I would personally take, you know? Yeah. I think you can never know unless you're in that position yourself. I'm really a big fan of Michael, especially after watching the Chowchilla film. Yeah. Just, he seems like really just the, the nicest, guy. salt of the earth, humble guy. And one thing that I thought was interesting that was brought up by some of the other victims was that in, in the wake of all of this, Ed was really hailed as the hero mm-hmm. uh, of this whole thing. And like the, the sole reason that these children got out and they survived and, and he got all the recognition, but the reality was, and all the children at the time knew that Michael was the one that literally dug them out yep. and freed them. At age 14. At 14. Like Ed, obviously as the adult, like kept them all together yeah, and like ultimately a, got a them to safety. Well. He's a hero as well. But Michael never got any, like, no, not so much as, as like a, a mention in the newspaper or the news or anything strange too you would think that'd be something they'd want to report on that people would have interest in this this heroic 14 year old who saves all these children i mean it's it is bizarre well and even when they came off the bus like he was i I think he said he was like ready to sit down and like talk about how they got out and like be a part of that conversation but he never got that opportunity and they just like brought ed in and ed kind of told the whole story and michael never really got to tell his story 
um, to it's the bizarre. public. It feels like if this were to happen nowadays, they would really want to include a 14 year old with such heroic actions. Yeah. Well, I, I think know. they just kind of jumped to conclusions in this and they just kind of assumed that Ed was as the adult was the hero and never considered the fact that maybe that one of the children were heroes as well. And obviously they, in a way were like, they're all heroes. They all got recognized. Um, but Michael really should have been singled out, I think, and given kudos for what he did and the bravery that he showed. And I mean, the, the mental anguish that he put himself through to get him out of that hole is truly next level. Like so much. So hearing it, hearing his story, like literally had had me close to tears because i was me just too. like this was, poor guy uh, he's just like i love this guy i love the way his style he's a you know he grew up wanting to be a cowboy and like he's that cowboy mentality uh to get himself out of the situation and you know after all this happened it, his life was completely turned upside down his family was was obliterated and he he fell into alcohol abuse to just escape these horrible memories that he was having and and he was back in the hole, you know, every night for a long, long time. And, you know, alcohol is the only thing that would take that, that away. But it ultimately took him off his path for many, many years. And, and I think part of it, too, that he deals with is like, nobody ever, you know, thanked me or recognized me for what I did. Um, and then there's this great moment um, in the doc where, Larry, which I love Larry too. I think Larry's a I amazing too. person too. And Larry actually meets up with Michael for the first time since this happened. So long. Which is crazy. And and Larry just like breaks down and just like thanks uh, thanks Michael so for, for literally saving their lives. And Michael's like he finally has that moment, I feel like, of of kind of peace with the whole situation. Oh, like, it's making me like I know, I know. I'm like again. I just it's it's Oh, it's so it's, well done. It's a great watch. I would definitely check it out if you're interested in this story. Because, uh, yeah, these people's stories, um, they're amazing. They're amazing. Uh, it's just so intense. I just, nobody understood the lasting trauma that they would have to endure for till the end of their lives. Like, they can't, like, one woman she lives in an area prone to tornadoes and she had to have her storm shelter. Normally you build a storm shelter underground, but they had to build it above ground because she refused to go underground again. And even still getting in this enclosed, you know, concrete boxes is terrifying for her. And it's just that, that experience never leaves you. And there's also Dr. Tear is her name. I think she's a psychiatrist, um, who gets involved, um, with all these victims and and finally like start you know helps them deal with this and and he, even she said she's just like this this story really paved the way like what they went through ultimately paved the way for understanding childhood trauma for years and years to come it's it's one of this this whole event is the reason that there were counselors at Columbine High School after after that shooting and mm -hmm. all the subsequent school shootings that have happened. Yeah, it, like, it transformed the way that a lot of things were done in the future. So just, it's so unfortunate that they had to go through this for us to learn this and understand this better, but truly inspiring. I mean, all of them, I just have so much respect for. 
So when I was growing up, I was lucky enough to have not struggled with acne throughout my teen years. And I thought, I'm set for life. But through my 20s and now into my 30s, I have struggled with acne quite a bit. Hormonal acne has been the bane of my existence and I have tried everything to clear it up. And it was really bad this last fall and I started really taking my skincare routine seriously and it's finally, finally at a good place. And a huge part of me clearing my skin has been by using apostrophe. Apostrophe is an online platform that connects you with an expert dermatology team to get customized acne treatment for your unique skin because, as you know, everyone's skin is just so different. But through Apostrophe, you can get access to oral and topical medications that use clinically proven ingredients to help clear acne. Simply fill out an online consultation about your skin goals and medical history, snap a few selfies, and a dermatology provider will create a customized treatment plan that's just for you. Apostrophe offers access to prescription treatments for all types of acne, from hormonal acne to facial acne, even bacne. You can truly treat breakouts from head to toe. Personally, I've been getting my spironolactone and my tretinoin through Apostrophe, and it's just so nice to not have to go to their dermatologist to get it and deal with the pharmacy. It's just shipped right to my door. I don't have to think about it. And those products have worked wonders for me. And Apostrophe has a special deal for our audience. You can get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash milehigher when you use our code milehigher. That's a savings of $15. And that code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash milehigher. Click get started, then use our code milehigher at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only five bucks. Thanks so much to Apostrophe for sponsoring this episode. So let's talk a little bit more about Ed. Ed Ray, the bus driver, who was acknowledged as a hero after the abduction for keeping the kids calm and helping them escape to safety. In the years after the abduction, he was awarded California School Employees Association Citation for Outstanding Community Service, an award that his children say he never boasted about. He was a very uh, humble, humble guy. He didn't Simple like guy, being yeah. called a hero, actually, because in his mind, he was doing what he had always done, keeping the kids safe. That was his number one priority. That was his job. And Ed got constant offers to make book deals. But that's the kind of guy he is. He refused to take any of them. He didn't want to make money off of this whole ordeal. He was just a simple, hardworking man, and he didn't want any more praise or recognition. And at one point, Ed told a reporter, quote, oh, I got over it. His wife, Odessa, said, quote, I don't know if you're over it. It still bothers you. And then she turned to the reporter. I know a lot of nights he still doesn't sleep. I know when things are bothering him. He'll go along for a while and then it'll come back. His nephew, Ronnie, has also stated that in the years following the kidnapping, Ed would act like everything was fine. But once in a while, Ronnie would catch him crying alone in his barn. God, that's heartbreaking. He did eventually return to bus driving and back to farming as well. And many of the children from the abduction would continue to visit Ed on a regular basis. Eventually, Ed did become ill and was hospitalized. His nephew, Ronnie, mentions that when Ed was in the hospital and everyone knew that they didn't have much time left with him, his grandkids gave him a toy bus and kept it on his nightstand. Ed ended up passing away in 2012 at the age of 91. So a very long Full life. life yeah. yeah. And during an interview with the Associated Press, Ed's son, Glenn, said that his dad always told him he, quote, felt it was his responsibility to get the kids back home to their parents safely. And that's all he could think about. 
In 2015, the town of Chowchilla took a step to keep Ed's memory alive by renaming the Sports and Leisure Park as the Edward Ray Park. In addition, the city of Chowchilla celebrates Edward Ray Day on the 26th of February, so that's coming up, which is Ed's birthday. And outside of City Hall, there is a memorial for the horrific events that happened back in July of 1976. A rock about four feet tall with a plaque reads, quote, With heartfelt thanks, the people of Chowchilla commemorate the safe return of 26 school children and their bus driver who were abducted on July 15, 1976, who escaped unharmed 80 hours later. At the base of the memorial, there are a bunch of little painted rocks. One said, you are rad. Another one said, Chowchilla rocks. Another one says, I believe in you. Believe spelled with a drawing of a bee and a leaf. So just, just really cute in a cool way to remember what has happened. Which I'm glad they're remembering Ed this way, but I, I just feel Michael. Michael's just got, he should have gotten something. No, he totally, like, I agree. Like there should be a Michael Marshall day. Yeah. You know what I mean? Why wasn't that? It, It doesn't make sense. Like, yes, Ed was the adult and, and yes, Ed deserved all of this. We're not saying he, shouldn't have gotten it all it's just michael should have gotten more i think just a slice of that my theory is and this is just based off of the the little interview footage of ed that we have is that if you go back and listen to ed's clip talking about what happened ed ed doesn't ever really like mention michael's name and he kind of just says some of the boys and i and like he doesn't ever, I don't know if he ever explains to like the press or the media that like, no, Mike Marshall was up there digging and, and, and brought, you know, basically created the whole escape plan and I just helped him. And I don't know that Ed ever said that to the media. I don't know this for sure, but I'm just theorizing that I almost feel like just the media never knew. And based on what all of the victims have said is that Mike's just such a chill guy that he's never he did, yeah. gone like out of his way to be like, hey, guys, actually, you know, yeah. and make a big deal about it. And I don't think that was Ed. I mean, I don't know for sure, but I don't think Ed was like purposely. No, trying I don't think to, he was purposely trying I, either to. They're like, all just so traumatized. Yeah. Like, just I mean, talking well, and, about it in general and recalling the events is so difficult as it is. But well, yeah, it is. It is unfortunate. Well, and it's obvious, too, that Ed's kind of a man of few words. Like, he doesn't yeah, really like very to, simple. to publicly speak, for sure. And mm-hmm. so I think it was just kind of like whatever was coming to his head. And he wasn't really thinking like, oh, I should describe this in as much detail with all the names and exactly what happened. And again, he had just been mm-hmm. been traumatized as well. But I just, yeah, I really feel for Michael because I just feel Michael is an absolute hero in this story and should well, be big shout out to michael from us absolutely michael we we are big fans for sure i mean what you did was unbelievable yeah you, you truly especially at 14 most likely years old, saved their lives literally got them out so, and who knows probably in, maybe in the nick of time yeah i mean who knows it seemed like that that Ceiling? roof could have yeah. caved in at any point oh, in time and they could have all died or had they not been found, they could have just suffocated, you know, slowly inside oh, of that box. Gosh. What do you think about the fact that the kidnappers are all released and living their lives now? I mean, it's like it certainly angers me because especially because I don't think any of them truly 
changed as people or had remorse. I mean, we don't have that much information about their current state, but I just, I don't see the point in releasing them. I don't either. I mean, they've already been in there for most of their lives. It's like, what when it's it? that many people and the ripple effects, and it's not just the people you kidnapped, it's all their family members too. I mean, it's, it's, well, why isn't there at s- least 50 people yeah, you know, that well, you've permanently altered their lives? I mean, I don't know. Well, why isn't there laws, you know, punishing people for causing psychological damage? You know what I mean? Like trauma to that extent for that, that ultimately caused all their lives to. No, it does. I know. I understand that it depends, but I just feel like that should be factored into it. More so. And I'm more so mad at the appellate court for overturning the bodily harm charges because ultimately that's that's why they got out that is and i think that was extremely unfair especially when you consider the fact that all of them could have died yeah at any moment it's like i mean you could have argued maybe they didn't have the intent to kill but i mean you could have argued more that they absolutely could have all lost their lives a mass murder i don't know i think they're way too dangerous have been ever yeah especially fred i mean maybe the other two i don't know okay to be released but fred at the very least have remorse or care no i think they're all dangers to society no it doesn't seem like they seems like they're more pissed that they were in oh yeah prison for so long i think they thought the way that they planned this out that oh you know we'll just get kidnapping charges at the very least you know i don't think any of them expected to spend most of their lives in prison Mm -mm. so i feel like in their eyes, they feel that, you know, they paid their dues and they should be released. But in the eyes of the victims, I think, for what they did and the gravity of the situation and the trauma that was caused, they should be still in prison. But well, that's the U.S. justice system for That's you. right. That is right. Super frustrating. One thing I wanted to mention is there was actually a study conducted by Dr. Lenore Ter, um, prior post all of uh, these events and it was really to look at the effects of the children and one part I found very interesting was um, about the children's uh, performance in school and um, I'm going to read you a part of this here it says Tara was the first researcher who paid attention to children post-disaster school performance surprisingly enough a change in school performance at a cognitive level was not common out of the 23 children, eight showed changes for, for worse in their school performance, while changes for the better were observed in two children. Low school performance was a result of personality changes, which led to conduct problems. Some students also developed school avoidance behavior. One of the main characteristics of post-traumatic stress disorder, flashbacks, or daytime intrusive visions was not observed in the child ch- children, which I find interesting. Yeah, they t- they talk about this extensively in the Chalchilla doc yeah, on do. on Max. Uh, it's she goes into more detail about this study and just the how alarming it was, how much this impacted all the children negatively, um, and how few of the children were able to move forward in their life without any sort of you know negative experiences. How so, could they not? Yeah. Well, that's why I just go back to him. Like the fact that these men traumatized all these children and impacted their lives so severely for the rest of their lives, I feel that they 
100% deserve to still be in prison for the rest of their lives. I agree you know what I mean? Because in a way, all of these people are in their own prison yeah, they for the all, rest of their life. Yeah, they never left the hole. Or, I mean, some of them, I guess, have, have moved have on. felt but, that yeah. they've moved on. I don't want to like but many of further them spent victimize them. But most of their adult lives still yeah. dealing with this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You know, this, this story is inspiring. It is ultimately positive because nobody nobody dies or is seriously physically injured the story of but heroism a, and survival for yeah. sure but it's it's also very sad at but the same time tragic absolutely tragic mm-hmm. um to just see how difficult it was to move move past what happened to them and then obviously very disappointing to see the kidnappers released from prison but yeah we'll we'll link that uh that documentary for you highly highly suggest you, you yeah, go watch it after well listening done. to this um it'll kind of connect uh all the pieces together for you visually and i mean s- interviews in it are, are excellent and some great moments captured so i think just hearing it directly from them yeah. is, is super powerful and obviously we're only able to play uh, uncopyrighted clips and older right. things that are not right they don't Archive really drive footage. it home as well as some no, of those interviews no. in the documentary do so yeah we'll link all that for you below but definitely let us know your thoughts and opinions on this one and mm-hmm. you think it's it's fair that the kidnappers were released we want to know but uh, we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up today here and uh, we'll see you guys next week with another one but until then keep on taking your mind a mile higher <laughs>